right now on Higher Journeys with Alexis Brooks. It wasn't until uh, Sebastian was diagnosed and and I, I had that moment where I felt the earth was opening up underneath my feet and I was about to sink into this dark, dark hole, or at least I wished I could, when I heard the words, uh, he has a lethal immune deficiency. He might not live past 30 years old. The only cure is a bone marrow transplant, uh, which has a serious risk of, of death as well. Uh, all of these words that I had to take in from my beautiful son that was sitting there at only five months old, uh, words can't express how devastating that was. Emmy Award-winning producer and news veteran Miguel Sancho thought he'd seen and covered it all. The stealthy, gritty, too unbelievable to be true stories that he'd researched meticulously and delivered to national television audiences for years. That was his bailiwick, a world he was all too familiar with, or so he thought. That is until something brought the reality of true drama into his own life. After he and his wife, Felicia, received devastating news that their son had a rare and potentially lethal disease, real life suddenly hit a sobering turn in the road for them. The couple immediately went into unimaginable overdrive, down a windy path of uncertainty and angst. But with faith in tow and a legion of angels along the way, they made it through. And as a result, a miracle would be in the offing. This real-life tale, more than you can handle, a rare disease, a family in crisis, and the cutting-edge medicine that cured the incurable documents this labyrinth of reality in all of its twists, turns, and lessons that Miguel, Felicia, and their family endured, a story that all families need to hear. Miguel Sancho, along with his wife, Felicia Morton, joined me to put their amazing journey on the record and to let others know who are grappling with their own struggles in the face of illness that faith, coupled with an open heart, and a fair dose of humility can conquer even the most challenging chapters of our lives. I'm going to say hello, everyone. I, I'm starting this the same way I started with our colleague, Tony Harris. It just has to roll right into uh, where it needs to go. Welcome to the both of you. I said to Miguel Felicia before we got on air, I called him to let him know I'd be a little bit late. And I said, I hope I can keep it together for this conversation because this book of yours, and by the time this show airs on March 3rd, you will be one day in from the release. More Than You Can Handle is quite a work, Journeyers, I've got to tell you. Now, I, I admitted something to Miguel off air. I don't know if I'm going to share the whole thing with you, but let's just say in the work that I do, I get goo gobs of books from lots of publicists all the time. And I'm very appreciative of that, but I can say with honesty and transparency, there are only a handful that I have read cover to cover and prep for an interview. Yours is one of that very small handful. It's that good, guys. And good, I want to be careful here because we're going to obviously get into what this story is about, a real story. Real people going through tumult and have come out triumphant. Um, I don't want to sound trite at all. This is a deep dive into the personal lives of everyday people who show how infinitely powerful, resilient, as well as flawed are. You're looking at them. Uh, 
Miguel, I think the best thing to do is to have you, if you can, I hope you practice because you're going to be doing this a lot, man, <laughs> doing these interviews. Right. Give me a, a summary. <laughs> How could you? Of uh, what this story of yours is about. Take your time. Sure. Go ahead and wrap it up for us. Absolutely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having us. And thank My you pleasure. to your audience for um, just giving us a little bit of your time. And uh, we hope to make it worthwhile, both in the conversation and in the reading of the book. Um, the story basically is about a family, our family, that, like many families, was leading a relatively quote unquote normal life with uh, certain predictable expectations about what life was going to mean for them going forward and their dreams and their hopes and all that. And then all that was basically uh, undercut rather dramatically, rather brutally, when our son, newborn son, started getting sick with a series of severe infections. And after going through months of hospitalizations and surgeries and sleepless nights and serious stress, um, we learned largely because of Felicia's perseverance and determination to find out what actually was wrong with him, that he had a primary immune deficiency he was born with. And on the one hand, it was good to know exactly what was going on. On the other hand, it completely threw us overboard into a whole other world of this rare disease community. And it is great that there's a community there with support, with advice, with um, solidarity. But at the same time, it's extraordinarily stressful, chronically stressful and traumatizing event that changed us profoundly and uh, made us all confront a lot of uh, realities about ourselves and our relationships that we've been able to kind of sweep under the rug. And um, this experience kind of broke us open in a lot of ways and exposed many of the cracks that we've been able to kind of spackle over in the course of our normal everyday lives and forced us ultimately to confront those things in a lot of ways. Um, now, the good news is, again, largely due to Felicia's research and perseverance and courage, we were able to find a path to getting him cured. Now, it's a long and difficult and painful path that we had to take, and it taught us a lot along the way. But basically, in order to get Sebastian cured, he had to endure one of the longest and most arduous and risky medical procedures known to mankind, which is a, a bone marrow transplant, as it's commonly known. In our case, the cells didn't come from bone marrow, but from an unrelated umbilical cord donor that was able to basically provide the stem cells that were replaced in his body and enabled these amazing doctors at Duke University Hospital to essentially get rid of his existing natural flawed immune system and build an entirely new one from scratch. That's what a bone marrow transplant is for people. Oh, sorry. That's what a bone marrow transplant is for people who are unfamiliar with it. Um, so that's essentially what it's about. And I would love to have Felicia expand on it. But one other thing that I would like to say briefly is that it also kind of is a story about how a couple as a couple and, you know, as two people of uh, you know, different genders, dealt with these onslaughts and these traumas. And I think it was it's hopefully um, an illuminating example of how men and women kind of with these things differently. Um, and in my case, you know, I didn't deal with it particularly well, uh, at least not at first. Um, and 
by the way, we're still both works in progress. It's not just, you know, a, a happy Hollywood ending uh, with a, a nice bow wrapped on it at the end. But uh, that's one of, I think, the takeaways that, uh, that I try to try to add to the book. We're always a work in progress. And I was just reflecting. I've never been an advocate or I've never believed in perfect because perfect implies complete. And how can we always be a work in progress when we're, or how can we be perfect if we're always a work in progress? Certainly. Right, Felicia, what do you think? Let, let's, let's bring in the woman's intuition. What oh, yes, yes. I was just uh, listening to everything and, and um, brought so many thoughts to my mind. Um, and what this book is about is such a great question because it's about many things. Ostensibly, it's about how we uh, cured our son's disease. Um, but actually, it's, it's so much more than that. It's about how uh, a husband, how a wife, how a mother and a father um, deal with the worst thing that can happen to them and how they um, are able to manage that process. Now, uh, also this book is about faith because uh, we had to have faith in so many ways. Now this disease, it's chronic granulatomous disease that the uh, lethal immune deficiency that Sebastian had affects only one out of 200,000 children worldwide each year born. Um, and what's very insidious about this disease is that the children can look really healthy and, and normal, and they can be with uh, even, you know, uh, in between infections without any medication, but once they're on daily med medication, which includes um, antibiotics and, and antifungals and um, gamma interferon, it's called CGD prophylaxis, uh, they can, they can seem perfectly healthy. And so that's really where faith comes into play because what is faith other than um, we don't know, we have to trust, we, ha we, we can't look into the future, we have to take each step forward uh, without seeing what is beyond uh, our horizon. And so that's why I really love the, the verse, we walk by faith, not by sight, that's uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 7. Um, and, and so when I talk about faith, uh, so much of this book is having faith in the process and faith in that in that we would find a cure for, for Sebastian. And having that faith brought me to a point where I was often at loggerheads with my husband because he had a, a worldview at that time, which was different. And you might want to call it a masculine worldview, which is, well, I can't control this process and and uh, things are supposed to be fine and this was not supposed to work out this way and um, and we cannot um, move to another place for the bone marrow transplant because of my job and uh, you know they're all uh, we don't know anyone there and and uh, and no one's going to help us and very you know this very cynical and also um, very what men might call rational view which. Mm -hmm. Rationality is op opposite from faith, correct? Uh, faith is not uh, rational. And um, so it was a struggle for me to communicate my faith with Miguel's rationality. And when we got to Duke, and, and we can get to this point, how it was like a, all of these years, it was three and a half years until we got to Duke for Sebastian's uh, stem cell transplant, that's where this, these seeds of faith that I had been planting blossomed so amazingly and, and um, many miracles took place there. Uh, so yeah. I'm, I'm actually going to stop you. I'm gonna, 
Sorry, I'm going to stop you there because I don't want you to, to blow my line. I want to bring yeah. this up and have you. <laughs> right. I want you to talk about Teresa, the Haitian technician, who I really feel set the stage when you, well, I'm going to have you tell the story, but I think it's phenomenal. And the moment you introduce her, Miguel, in the book, I said, she's the first and maybe the most integral angel. She knew what she was talking about. What did she say in the early stage of your journey? Thank you so much for asking me about Teresa. Um, uh, she also goes by the name Reese, so I know her as Reese. But um, I was raised in a, in a very um, faith-filled home and, and community. I was very blessed to have um, many sisters and brothers around me who, who loved me and, and would pray with me. And it was normal to have prayer meetings in our home and, and to meet for you know potlucks you know once a week and Bible studies. Um, but I kind of uh, turned my back on that, moving to the city, wanting to uh, see the world, wanting to experience life on my own terms. And uh, it wasn't until uh, Sebastian was diagnosed and, and I, I had that moment where I felt the earth was opening up underneath my feet and I was about to sink into this dark, dark hole, or at least I wished I could when I heard the words, uh, he has a lethal immune deficiency. He might not live past 30 years old. The only cure is a bone marrow transplant, uh, which has a serious risk of, of death as well. Uh, all of these words that I had to take in for my beautiful son that was sitting there at only five months old, uh, words can't express how devastating that was. And, and I remember limping out of the of the hospital uh, room where, where I'd gotten this diagnosis of the, of the office. And I saw uh, the uh, phlebotomist who, who had taken Sebastian's blood. And I remember what a challenge it was uh, to get his blood, but she had a certain calm and a certain peace about her. And she had gotten his blood beforehand without any trouble. I remember her taking a moment just that seemed to pray. And I sensed that. Uh, and then it, the needle went right in. And uh, that was unusual because it, that, as many parents of rare disease know, drawing blood, pokes, and all these things can be some of the most traumatizing, especially for babies. And uh, so as I was about to open the door to go out into the real world, uh, and I wondered, how am I going to open this door? Because my world now is over. It, the door opened for me, and there was Reese, And she looked at me with these eyes of knowing and she just said, he's going to be okay. I know he will. And she started to pray with me. And the prayers that we had were the prayers like I had had in my church community. Very uh, beautiful and deep prayers of, you know, asking Lord, beseeching Lord, take care of this boy, take care of his mother, they're for your purpose. And she she said this, well, well, holding me and, and putting her hand on Sebastian. And I just started to cry and I just said, thank you so much. But how do you know he's going to be okay, Reese? And she said, he will, you'll see. Just be strong and stay with the Lord. And we've stayed in contact ever since. Oh, that's beautiful. I told you I wouldn't be able to hold it together. This is one of those stories that it'll make you cry for sure. It'll make you laugh as well. Miguel, you've got a rare blend of irreverence and humor and humility and God knows what else. It's all in there. And I <laughs> hope that in, on this long, arduous journey of yours, there was a little bit of humor to try to lighten it up a little bit because this is still a fresh 
I'm not going to say wound because I, I believe it feels like it's healed. It sounds like it's healed, but it's still new. Yeah. I mean, when right? we first, yeah, it's, it's interesting. You mentioned that when, when um, we were, you know, you know how books get sold, you write a proposal and then you send it out to a bunch of different potential publishers. And one of them wrote back with a very polite rejection, by the way, very helpful rejection. One of the things that uh, he wrote was, it seems that Miguel might still be processing this whole experience. And um, when I got that, I said, guilty as charged. You're That's okay. Nothing wrong with that. Well, yes, you got, you, you got that right. Uh, and it's going to be, you know, an ongoing process um, for us. But also, again, you know, I, one thing I really want to say is that we had it lucky in a lot of ways. You know, in the course of this this process and this journey, we met so many other families who either had kids with much more um, just really disturbing and troublesome uh, conditions um, that made their quality and quantity of life um, considerably more compromised than the best we could hope for Sebastian. And also other families um, with the same condition dealing with uh, CGD, which is the name of this mm -hmm. condition Sebastian had, that just had a tougher time of it all the way through. Tougher experiences pre-transplant, tougher experiences trying to manage the disease, tougher uh, experiences with transplant if they went that way. Uh, so, you know, we are among the very blessed, uh, even though, as I mentioned before, it's something that we'll still be kind of assimilating and trying to learn from and trying to... Um, kind of stay on the path as we go forward. At some point in the book, I want to say it's earlier on when you're really assimilating or trying to distill what's happening in your world, your world, the family's world has been rocked. And you make mention, Miguel, uh, of your work as a celebrated veteran news guy, Emmy Award winning producer, where you would cover some of the most heart-wrenching, tragic, unimaginable stories. Here's the question that came to mind for me. When all of this came down, on some level, did you think, I call it synchronicity, that all of the years of work that you've done in this field might have been preparing you for something like this? Now, this is a stretch, and this is kind of a metaphysical concept, if you will. I happen to feel that there are no accidents there's just a strange confluence of events and preparation for things you may not know for 10, 20 years out. Do you know what I'm asking? No, I do. And the answer is it had kind of prepared me intellectually. Hmm. Right? And I'll tell you why, because I did it in the course of, you know, my work as a journalist in, in various news organizations. One thing that you find yourself doing almost all the time is encountering people whose quote unquote normal lives were suddenly thrown radically off course by some unexpected and intense mm -hmm. event. And it could be anything from, of course, you know, a car crash to a crime to a war to, you know, being the victim of a fraud, what have you. And I was always interested intellectually in that thing. Like, how do people manage the fact that they think their life is going in this direction and suddenly, boom, and it's going in another direction. Uh, so that had always one of the things that I was always curious about when I spoke to people like that. But I want to be very clear that despite all of that, it hadn't prepared me emotionally or psychologically for when it happened to us, when it was our turn to have that kind of experience. 
And um, I'm not proud to say that it's kind of embarrassing, um, but it was um, very difficult for me to embrace this fact that our old life was not coming back, at least not anytime soon. Right. The first thing I wanted to do is do whatever it takes just to get back to normal, just to get back on track. Right. You know, we planned a vacation when he had first gotten sick. What's it going to take so we can just get you know out of the hospital and you know back on our vacation maybe a day or so later? Uh, and then you know I tried being stoic and just kind of acting you know like Clint Eastwood and you know being impervious to, uh, to anything, just kind of considering the challenge like a, as an endurance test. And I was going to prove myself by uh, underreacting to everything. But of course that doesn't work either. You know, you, you these things build up in you, and they found themselves expressing themselves in, in a number of unhealthy ways, um, manifesting as you know anger, fear, anxiety. Uh, the, the kind of unholy trinity of, um, of mental health challenges, really. Um, I tried embracing workaholism, right? That's, uh, that's a very common thing to do. You know, work is a place where things were kind of... Um, control. Yes. That's, thank you, Felicia. Yeah, where I had some control, some mm -hmm. predictable. My status was kind of understood. I had a certain amount of authority. I had a certain amount of respect. Um, and that's work world. And then over in this other world, which was, you know, our domestic life in general, but also the, the very, the very confined um, and defined space of hospital world, as we call it. Mm, that's right. None of those things are true, right? You're um, whatever you think you were on the outside. You're not that on the inside. Um, and so again, my one of my one of my um, bad choices was trying to just run into this work world and treat treat that as a source of strength and stability and um, redemption. And anybody will tell you that ultimately, you know, work, taking work too seriously isn't good for anybody, you, your family, and also your work colleagues. So um, it was only after, you know, knocking my head against all these other bad choices um, that I um, decided with Felicia's very stern uh, guidance that uh, we needed to go in a different direction if we're going to, um, if we're going to keep things together. One of the things that you did, I had no idea. I thought I was getting to know you, Miguel, but it wasn't until this book that I really feel like I know you. Yeah, probably You're too much. <laughs> it's a beautiful story. Meditation. Talk mm -hmm. about that. Meditation. How, where, how did that come in to this very, if I may say, left brain, male-dominated persona of yours? Meditation. And what role did it play in helping you down the road? Right. So uh, I'm not the first person to say this. So, you know, people have probably heard, you know, the, the kind of gospel of mindfulness, you know, a dozen times by the time uh, they hear my voice. Uh, but essentially, uh, you know, it, it's a practice that helps you put some distance between yourself and your feelings, put some distance between yourself and the kind of constant onslaught of life's traumas, be they big or small. And um, it's a practice that I took up in the fall of uh, 2013 um, at the behest or suggestion, I should say, of a friend of mine named Dan Harris, who's something of a thought leader in the space. And, um, you know, it taught me a number of things, um, one of which was just to kind of, and, and it's interesting because I say it taught me that and it kind of showed me the path, but it doesn't necessarily mean I followed the path, you know, step by step ever since then. In fact, it was just... Uh, a week ago that Felicia was um, reminding me 
uh, helpfully that, you know, the ego is, you know, the source of all evil and that, you know, it's the ego that leads us to kind of um, embrace pain and cause pain and um, kind of try to make oneself uh, bigger uh, when you feel that the world is making you small. Uh, so it put me, I think, in a, in a healthier understanding with uh, issues like that, that you know, just help me, you know, when I'm doing it, when I'm taking it seriously, mm-hmm. when I'm walking the walk, which is not all the time, but, okay. you know, but when I am there, I can, I, I can be at least a better person to be around. You've come a long way. And I know you've got, I'm looking at your absolutely stunning wife, by the way. You're gorgeous. I know inside and out. Well, thank you. It takes one to know one. (laughs) But I, there's an aura around you. I'm not going to get too woo-woo on you guys. Well, actually, this is a a woo-woo show. We can do that a little bit. But I I sense an aura around you, my dear. And I know that that aura, although it's nonverbal, had and has to this day an effect on this beautiful man you're married to. So, um Gosh, where do we go from here? Ta- let's talk a little bit more about those angels. And I say this is a synchronistic walk. You know, even when it looked dark, the angels just kept coming. What? Let me ask you this, Felicia. I, I'm sure there was some really, really mind twisting, like, oh, my God, how did this happen? Even a woman of faith like yourself, who I'm sure understands this beautiful dance that I call universe has with life where uh, God will put people, places and things in your life to to sort of like the breadcrumbs of life. And I never cease to be amazed. You know, I, I've been of this mindset forever that uh, everything is ordered, even if we don't understand it. I don't believe in the randomness, I, my humble opinion. But I still get stumped, not stumped, but some things that happen are just irrefutable and just, you know, and the proof is out there <laughs> later. <laughs> nice plug. <laughs> but Felicia, have you on this journey and maybe even before or since had anything happen that you just thought, oh, my God, I can't believe this in a good way. Like th- there's something really powerful going on. Anything in particular that stands out for you in this journey? Well, well so many things. And uh, first of all, um, I do want to say that I was raised in a, a a faithful environment, but um, but I had I had left that warm embrace, if you will, uh, to go out into the world and and deal with all the harshness and and I, I had become kind of harsh in the process and um, just looking at what I needed to do to succeed. And I was you know from Chicago, from the Midwest, and I really wanted to be like a hardworking uh, New Yorker and 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 uh, do my best uh, to achieve. And so. Uh, my journey back to faith was not an easy one uh, to let go of that my need to control. And, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, I married Miguel. I was very uh, impressed by uh, his intellect. And um, those are one of the things that I, I wanted to, uh, to, to elevate in my life as well. And, and so faith took a back seat. But then I saw how important uh, faith was. And, and, and uh, to uh, answer your question, there were just so many moments from, from Reese. Um, at Will Cornell uh, Hospital in, in Manhattan to all of the things that um, we had thought were going to be stumbling blocks moving to Durham, North Carolina from Manhattan. 
A, we didn't know anyone there. B, would Miguel be able to work from there? Uh, C, would uh, this transplant even work because we couldn't find a, a bone marrow match and there wasn't a, a good uh, um, anonymous cord blood match? All, the, all of these things. And, and it was kind of like uh, the Israelites at, at, uh, uh, at the Red Sea. They just looked like they're, you know, they were against it and there was no way they were going to escape. Um, but one by one, um, you know, these things fell and, and the sea parted. Uh, it turned out that not only did we know people there, but they became our best friends. Um, and, and when I say know them, we didn't really know them that well before. In fact, I would say one of the biggest um, examples of synchronicity uh, was with uh, a woman I came to know named Jessica. And she was someone who was uh, connected to friends of mine in the church in Chicago, who connected me to a friend in Manhattan who said, oh yes, I know someone who just moved to Durham, North Carolina. Her name's Jessica, I didn't know her that well. She was working in advertising in Manhattan and she moved there with her husband. He got some job in finance and you can look her up. And I, I hadn't done it because I didn't know uh, when I was going to get there and we were only there in uh, North Carolina for what was supposed to be originally a weekend for a, a consultation for the doctors to meet Sebastian to prepare for the transplant that was gonna possibly take place in the summer, but it turned out that um, they found his first serious lethal infection just when we happened to be where he could be treated. So that's one element of, of synchronicity there. We couldn't go home. They said we, we cannot allow him to leave. He needs to be treated here. So what was supposed to be a three day experience turned into nine months. Um, and uh, I was alone. Miguel came down with the flu as did Lydia. I somehow was not, did not have the flu, which is very important because you can't go into a, uh, these environments with the flu, the transplant unit or any of that is almost hermetically sealed. And I was alone, alone at this point where I did not know anyone and I was so terrified and I just called this number that I had and um, this young woman named Jessica answered the phone and, and she said, Felicia, I I'm a nursing student now just in the next building over, you can, actually see the building from your window, I'll be right there. Oh my gosh, I love it. And and she came over and, and Sebastian needed to have him, um, uh, a bronchoscopy, which one was which involved him going down and, and being under general anesthesia. And I was there waiting alone because Miguel and Lydia couldn't be there for him to come out of uh, surgery. And she just showed up in scrubs and she just hugged me and we started to cry. And um, that's one of the, the many things and she became, um, like a sister to me. So sometimes when we feel we don't have any family and I'm an only child, I often felt too. alone, but we have our family. We have brothers and sisters all around us. Uh, and, and we don't even know it, um, through these spiritual connections through God. And so, uh, she became everything to me. She, she helped with Lydia. She babysat Lydia. She helped me, um, find the things I needed for, you know, to build a life there for, you know, the house, bedding, car seats, you name it, all the things I couldn't bring. Um, because, you know, we were only supposed to be there for three days. So, um, so I, I will always be, uh, so grateful to her and, and, uh, she's in the book and, uh, we, we, we still talk and, and, uh, we, of course we'll always talk and, and um, uh, so that's just one of the many angels that that we have seen. And so I could tell you many, many more, but I'm sure 
probably one of the, the first ones, the first um, examples that just really touched me so much when we when we got to North Carolina and I was at my lowest point. Wow. I know that there are many. We could take this conversation to tomorrow. <laughs> and unfortunately, we're not going to be able to do that. We're going to have to wind up soon. But I, I do want to leave with this question for you. Let this be our last question. Given all that's going on right now, I don't need to say any words. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. Again, another, what you could look at as a powerful synchronicity, as a precursor, what you went through and what the rest of the world, in, in some way, some semblance of what you went through to varying degrees. Have you thought about that? Like, wow, how things work. And again, any significance to perhaps why this was thrust in your life to be able to help others that are going through stuff right now. Miguel? Yeah, right. So when, right when I was finishing the book is when the, the pandemic, you know, hit and, you know, we just found ourselves saying, okay, here we go again, you know, after basically five years of living in some degree of social distancing or at least worrying about infection, um, we got another year of this. Well, we didn't know at the time, but now it's clear that, you know, it's been another year. So we kind of went back to a lot of the procedures that we'd learned uh, in transplant and after transplant. And just so that your audience is familiar with it, you know, when you get a bone marrow transplant, you have to spend two months in this hermetically sealed unit. I said two months because that's what we spent, but many people spend you know, considerably longer if they have complications. Um, and then you have to spend several months after that um, living in a rather intense state of uh, post-transplant quarantine until the new immune system builds back up and you can kind of deal with the world. So we're like, okay, here we go again. So on the, on the one hand, we knew that um, we knew some of the drills and we knew we had, we had a box of gloves and masks right in the garage that we could just go grab. So that part of it was okay. Um, and then we tried to remind ourselves though that, uh, and Felicia makes it, this point rather beautifully in the book, that when you're you know, quarantined with uh, your family, it can present a wonderful opportunity to kind of listen and learn from each other and spend quality time that you don't normally have when you have all the kind of distractions and obligations from the outside world. Um, and we also reminded ourselves that you know, you need an immune system for your body, but you also need one for your mind. And uh, it's really important to recognize that the psychological impacts of um, living like this are very real. They're not to be minimized or poo-pooed or um, swept under the rug. So uh, that's another part of it. And the, the other, you know, bit of um, wisdom, to, for lack of a more humble term, um, is that you know, we always are going to live in a world with some risk. Um, you know, you have to embrace the fact that the myth of perfect safety is a myth. And, um, you know, when you're dealing with pathogens, things you can't see, it's very easy to think that they're everywhere and, you know, you're going to, um, you're definitely going to get it and you can't do anything. And obviously some people are very, you know, much at risk and need to take, you know, certain degrees of precaution. But at a certain point, and it's a very personal thing, I'm not telling people how to live, but you know, for us, at a certain point, you have to understand that life involves risk 
and you have to have some degree of risk tolerance if you're gonna if you're gonna live at all. Life involves risk, true. But again, because my philosophy uh, sort of leans toward with the risk, there's protection in that unseen, omnipotent, omnipresent, ubiquitous, loving world or loving energy that we call God, call it source, call it universe. So that gives me a measure of comfort Yeah, um, as we walk mm-hmm. this quote, risky walk. I mean, I got to look at my, say again. No, I was just going to tell one little story, but we don't have time for it. Go ahead. Fine. No, no, no. Go, go, go. No, go no, no. I mean, just, you know, the kind of the book lays out is me being, you know, the, the, the man of science and the man of, um, you know, rationality and empiricism and Felicia, um, you know, having more, who, who also, by the way, knows the science much better than I do, um, but also has an easier time uh, accounting for and embracing uh, the spiritual or the metaphysical. Um, you know, the, the study of the science was a wonderful consolation, right? You, you Understanding, you know, learning about the human body, learning about this mysterious and fascinating thing called the immune system, and learning about all these wonderful, angelic, I'll use the term, doctors and nurses who have dedicated their lives to helping save, you know, children with these, you know, really daunting diseases and conditions um, was really uh, inspiring and Mm -hmm. enlightening and rewarding in its own way. And because in in a way, I, I, I wanted to, it was helpful for me to know that even if Sebastian didn't make it, and some kids don't make it, that because he was involved in all the kind of the research and he was he was contributing, his life would have meaning because it was going to help help make the science move forward, even in some tiny little way. But at the moment of transplant, uh, Alexis, when we're actually the nurses are actually infusing the donor cells into his body, nobody knows what's going to happen. Despite all the science, all the research, all the data, all the past history, it is a leap of faith. Mm-hmm. Uh, those cells go in. And, you know, Felicia and I said a prayer at the time, you know, the doctors just have to let the biology take over. And why some child had has a, a positive outcome and why another child doesn't is still something that's um, kind of beyond the realm of uh, the current scientific understanding. Well, so, um, our doctor said when I asked when I asked them, why did Sebastian sail through? Um, they, they, they all said, well, only God knows. And that's coming from the doctors. Only God knows. And there is a reason. And the one, well, there are two individuals, two other angels that you happen to live with. And that is indeed Sebastian and Lydia. And uh, I wish we had time to go a little bit more into their story, because I know there's a story there, too. And I have a feeling that Sebastian, did he make a pre-incarnate agreement not only to go through this, He's a special child, beyond special. I don't even like that word anymore because it's been so, you know, stigmatized special. No, no, no. I want to talk, Felicia, offline with you. I have some thoughts. I'm going to leave it there. Sebastian's a pretty special human being here for a reason right now, here for a purpose. Lydia, too. So I'm going to leave it there. I don't want to, if I say anything else, it'll be a spoiler. I'm going to hold the book up. And we're going to put a, we'll put an image up as well. The book is called More Than You Can Handle, A Rare Disease, A Family in Crisis, and the Cutting Edge Medicine that Cured the Incurable. 
And I said to Miguel, this is New York Times bestseller stuff, dude. Get ready. Get ready. We'll have a link for this book. And by the time this show airs, it'll be available March 2nd. Yes? Yes, show indeed. Airs on March 3rd. So congratulations and uh, kudos on your walk, your continued journey together, the, the both of you, your beautiful family. And I want to hold this book up again. I'm going to put an image up on the screen. But, you know, it wasn't until... I think just yesterday, because I just opened this thing and I just dove right in, that I realized that this is a silhouette of the family, yes? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's amazing. Yeah. Powerful stuff. Yeah, they did a good job with that. Um, uh, so thank you so much for giving us this opportunity to you know, share a little bit of our story with your audience. You know, Again, I, I really want to emphasize that we approach the whole thing with from a position of extreme humility. You know, we, 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 we had an experience and we want to share that experience, but I'm, you know, I'm not an expert. I'm not um, in a position to, you know, kind of preach to anybody. Um, I'm, I'm still just trying to learn and trying to move forward, you know, as best I can. In that humility. And I've heard you, this is why I like you so much, like you so much, Miguel, you know, he's my new BFF, right? Good, please, <laughs> please, do. yes. Take them out for coffee or you know oh, God. some good bottled water. I don't yes, something something <laughs> humility. Anyone that that brings that up like you do is a friend of mine. We're missing that. You can't be that egotistical to <laughs> to bring up that very, very powerful word. You know how I feel about humility. It's a universal mandate if you dare explore the nature of reality. Like we're doing, and I am going to use this for a segue as we close out. In case you didn't know, Miguel is the person that makes sure I look halfway good and everybody else, because he's the executive producer of a new series called The Proof is Out There, which I'm so delighted to be a part of. So I'm going to put a banner up so y'all can see it. If you haven't seen the show already, I believe, although we've concluded season one, you can still get it on demand, right, Miguel? Yeah, and um, I think there's a distinct possibility that there will be, um, you know, more of those uh, episodes coming in the near future. So uh, we look forward to working with you more again. And again, you know, just to, to nail that humility point, because that's kind of the the bridge between the two hmm. uh, concepts here. You know, with that show, that's kind of our starting point. That you know, we know a lot. We're you know, for for a little species in one remote little corner of the universe, we've actually you know done some pretty impressive things. Um, figuring out how the whole thing works uh, to a certain degree, but there's still so much that we don't know. There's still so much um, that we should be open to um, and not dismiss it. Yeah, and be aware of, you know, Felicia and I were just talking about this a little bit earlier today, be cognizant of our own intellectual and personal biases that we bring to um, any kind of encounter with um, either a, a, a empirical evidence or uh, an interpersonal interaction. Whatever it is, you know, uh, it really is helpful and healthy to take a good look at yourself and to question your own assumptions and to try to check um, your own ego when it comes to That's right. uh, the, the process of exploration. Here, here. Amen. I love you both, by the way. We love I you too. Well, we love you too. And more, I think you're amazing. Yeah. <laughs> God bless you. Thank you once again, and congratulations. And I know you've got some more angels to meet on your journey, and you're living with a couple of them. So thanks, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. 
journeyers for joining us for Higher Journeys. I hope you enjoyed the show. Go get that book. It's all of that and a bag of chips. (laughs) We'll talk to you soon. God bless.